This is a podcast by The Straits Times. With each passing year, the impacts from climate change are getting worse, affecting more people and causing more damage. No one is spared. Yet climate change is a man-made disaster. It is caused by many decades of burning fossil fuels and rampant deforestation to drive economic growth and expansion of agriculture. Emissions from these activities are heating up the atmosphere and oceans and changing the world's weather. So why aren't we doing everything we can to tackle this problem? And what can we do to change the picture? With us today is Dr. Vinod Thomas, a visiting professor at the National University of Singapore, who was a former World Bank Vice President. His recently published book is a guide to how best to respond to the climate change threat and how to be better prepared for the worsening impacts to come. Welcome to the show, Dr. Thomas. Thank you very much, David. So let's start off with some more details about the book, which is really a call to action by governments, corporations, donor banks, and more. The book focuses, for instance, on the the risks of climate change and the urgent need for greater resilience to cope with climate impacts. So tell us more about the book and really the you know the main messages. In, in thinking about the book, the main message comes to the surface right away in that humanity has always faced risks and our way has been to build resilience to cope with the risks. But climate change seems to have changed that equation rather fundamentally. Since climate risks are human-made, predominantly human-made, the nature of the resilience that we need to build is going to be different. That is to say, it's not enough to build back and cope and then wait for another disaster whenever it happens, but rather it is important to build back better, even build forward, because you are sure that a similar or a worse disaster will strike and strike systematically. And so the nature of resilience building in the context of climate change is very different and policymakers and the public need to keep this in mind in order to avoid worse catastrophes. So Vinod, why did you write the book now? For instance, you say climate change is the gravest development risk facing humanity. And yet somehow the urgency to act is somehow lost on many politicians and the public. That leaves us incredibly vulnerable, doesn't it? Well, uh, in the case of a number of other problems, and we have many to list uh, all the way from COVID-19 to HIV AIDS and financial crisis and so on, there is dose of wickedness or difficulty in uh, resolving them. And uh, that is very much the case for climate change as well. But in the case of problems like the ones I mentioned, there is also a degree of natural tendency that if you did the right things and so on, the problems will converge to some solution. For example, overfishing is a classic case of what's called the tragedy of the commons. And in that case, yes, 
it is tough, but the fishermen, fisher folk uh, come together if property rights are provided, etc. And uh, there is an answer to the problem to some extent. In the case of climate change, and here is the reason for the urgency and the rationale for writing the book in such a hurry, is that here we have case of possible divergence in the sense that with greater demand for cooling as a result of greater warming and dislocation of energy supplies as a result of extreme weather, including extreme cold, the use of fossil fuels can go up, not down. And that in turn makes the problem worse and we go down a spiral. So to avoid that, we really have to think hard and even think of circuit breakers and some actions that would put us back into equilibrium. And that is the special urgency of climate change. So tell us more about the risks from climate change and the risks of inaction. So what sort of future are we facing, especially when climate impacts are colliding with shrinking water resources, financial stress, rapid loss of biodiversity and mass migration? Everything just seems to be coming together for a, a huge collision. Absolutely. I think this is a quintessential characteristic of climate change that several issues appear at once. And the problem is that one problem uh, seems to aggravate the other. In the case of South, Southeast Asia, perhaps the more dr- most dramatic aspect would be that sea levels along the coastline are expected to rise and let's say 30 centimeters over the next 30 years. And that would be as much as the entire increase that was registered over the past 100 years. And that is especially worrying because when sea level rise is combined with the problems uh, of sinking cities, that subsidence or land subsidence uh, coupled with climate change raising the sea level temperatures Um, is a recipe for disaster as cities like Bangkok, Jakarta, and and others are really facing at the moment. Those problems of big cities grab the headlines uh, because they are often capital cities, uh, but they are not the only ones. And as uh, you said, David, a uh, multiple-prong uh, approach is needed because just to add one other example would be climate migration, a bit more of a silent, uh, slow-onset problem compared to Uh, sinking cities. But the problem of absorbing climate uh, migrants is extraordinary, according to the latest numbers, which keep going up with every new prediction. Uh, Southeast Asia is in for a a long haul. Now, of course, your book is also very much focused on resilience. Uh, And and as you said, um, it's not just about building back better. It's actually planning for or trying to plan for what's coming. And we have to sort of build societies, our infrastructure for a much more, I guess, dangerous world. So in the book, for example, uh, you talk about building resilience that is, it's no longer about just recovering from a disaster, but rebuilding back better in anticipation of higher bars to cross. So this sounds like a really quite important and monumental challenge. Yes. What you describe, uh, David, is um, really a paradigm shift in the case of resilience building we are looking at natural phenomenon that humanity doesn't control, it probably makes sense to deal with them as they occur and cope as best as you can, because you're not sure when and where, what is going to hit. And that's good economics. However, if climate change, and there is 
plenty of scientific evidence that it is anthropogenic or human-made, then there is a degree of predictability that if you reform the human activity, climate change can be reformed as well. So in that situation, it is vital that resilience is seen not just as coping, but also adding to the picture a certain degree of ability to withstand systematically increasing problems that would occur otherwise. And uh, that some have called building back, turning into building forward. The key difference then is that policymakers should be building in prevention as opposed to simply reaction. And that is a, a big deal in the sense that reaction or reactive activities get a lot of press coverage. It happens within the election cycle and you see the benefits right away. Whereas prevention is a bit more long-term, it's behind the scenes, and the returns happen after the politicians leave the office. And so all around the world, prevention gets short shrift and coping, very important, saving lives, for example, they do get all the attention. But we need to shift the paradigm to seeing both coping and prevention as equally important in the new world of the resilience that is needed. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Now, I think you've, you've just touched on this, uh, this issue, but what are the main reasons for humanity's slow response to what is a man-made crisis, ironically? Well, there are multiple reasons, and analysts are puzzling over this, that we seem to spend quite a bit of time on simpler or immediate problems, but not so on what some have coined existential threat, that is of climate change. So here are some key differences. When the world faces HIV AIDS, COVID-19, or the global financial crisis, actions match the warnings and large sums are mobilized. But in the case of climate change, that mobilization of resources seems to be held back by conflict of interest. It helps society to solve climate change, but it can hurt individual interests in contributing to that. For example, the fossil fuel lobby. If we shift from fossil fuels to renewable forms of energy like solar and wind, you can't deny that there is a short-term loss to those who are relying on fossil fuels. But the society wins. We even survive. But the resistance from the fossil fuel lobbies, to the extent of even misleading the public on the science of climate change, uh, would have to be the first number one problem. There are a couple more I might add, but briefly, the second is that the connection between climate change and calamities is a bit more circuitous than, let's say, the connection between COVID-19 and you go into the ICU or having vaccination and not facing COVID-19. So it's one-to-one. -one. Whereas here, you have fossil fuels, you have carbon emissions, and then in turn, warming, and then the warming in turn uh, turns uh, more, uh, provides more energy into storms and uh, more precipitation, more rainfall. By the time you finished with that circular reasoning, the attention is lost and uh, it could be confusing. So connecting those dots would be 
critical in the case of climate change. And perhaps just to uh, add to that, some problems, um, health issues, I mean, there's a bit of a local character to do that in the sense that society in a particular setting can come up with the answer and you benefit from that. Whereas in the case of climate change, if say Singapore alone took all the action, it won't move the needle because the footprint of uh, Singapore is less than 1.1%. Uh, it really needs regional, if not global action. And how do you get everybody to play together uh, when there are all kinds of concerns about climate justice and free ridership? I cut carbon emissions, you don't, but you benefit, and uh, I may benefit too, but is that fair, et cetera, et cetera. So it is a bit of a messy knot in that case. So those three reasons, I would say, make climate change stand out as a uniquely super wicked problem. But Vinod, the good thing is that there are solutions, and um, you've just mentioned some of them, including um, wind and solar energy, for example. And these have, you know, these green energy technologies have developed quickly, uh, along with electric vehicles, cleaner ways to make steel, cement, and other materials. And you look at this in your book as well. So maybe just tell us a little bit about some of the good news, if you like. So in in, in that list of good news items, uh, one could have been the most effective, perhaps, uh, lifestyle changes, change in our mindsets change in our thinking about what constitutes progress and clean energy and good quality growth, replacing the quantity of growth, uh, however you produce, that will do the trick. Just that change of mindset and you don't need regulations and all the rest because people will follow suit. That may be utopia uh, in our lifetime. So, But the younger generation is definitely pushing in that direction. But aside from that, technology is is definitely based on the track record of technology, the fallback, and uh, green hydrogen, not just hydrogen, green hydrogen would definitely be high on that list. Uh, similarly, carbon capture, which uh, many companies are um, um, working on, they uh, need to be speeded up and very, very rapidly. And the good news is that hydrogen the demand for it has risen sharply in recent years from very low levels, but projected to go grow five to six times by 2050. Again, there it is hydrogen. And so, you know, if, if the input to that is fossil fuels, that doesn't help. So we need to really ensure that it is green hydrogen. And on that, there has been some breakthrough, but going online commercially is still a long shot. Uh, so promising, but it doesn't address our problem of peaking by 2030. Similarly, I would say one could think about a world in which we use market mechanisms much more vigorously, actually as the textbook asks for, which is price carbon, put a price on clean air, put a price on forestry, and things will follow. And Singapore has a carbon price in the form of a carbon tax. If scaled up, and if Southeast Asia follows suit, and if, for heaven's sake, the G20 countries all agree to employ a carbon tax, sizable, effective, well, I would venture to say that would solve one third of the problem. 
and that's not small. So there are some wonderful avenues. It seems to me that it requires a combination of a change in understanding and mindset on the problem itself and then pushing the technology and economic interventions at the same time. And just a final question. I mean, climate change, as we know, is a very complex issue, lots of competing interests, and it's, as you've described it, a super wicked problem. But I guess to me, it's also about helping people join the dots to understand the causes of climate change and the solutions. And that obviously is key for the media, but also politicians. So tell us a little bit about how best to help people join the dots, understand the the real issues and the causes. I think, um, interestingly, if you look at the polls of very recent years, people do rank climate change as one of the highest global risks. That's good. I mean, it's recognizing the gravity of the problem. But it does not mean anything unless we also have a poll that says, when it comes to spending, climate change would be my first uh, priority. That hasn't happened, and it's not even close. So we had a long way off in that. And the reason, again, it seems to me, is what you said, the inability or the inadequacy of connecting the dots. In any of these other wicked problems that we talked about, attribution, accountability were really part of it. Uh, Smoking uh, cigarettes and lung cancer, one-to-one connection, attribution, and therefore action relating to the source of the problem. That has not yet occurred in the case of climate change. How often do you see weather reporters in the midst of a big storm say that this has a lot to do with fossil fuels? It's all about describing the wind patterns and uh, and surely very important where people should relocate to and the hardships we are going in, stories of bravery, all of that is great, but we are missing the point on the source of the problem. We can't keep describing these events as they get worse and worse uh, without uh, getting to the root of the problem. It's like mopping up the floor as the fl- it gets flooded, but never turning off the tap. So I think the critical point here again is uh, connecting the dots, but with a policy focus that you link back the events of today in real time to the source of the problem and then do what is needed with safety nets and other mechanisms for labor market retraining, etc., to make that transition stick. Many countries have tried one thing or the other. Uh, some have flip-flopped. And the reason is that, you know, even when the right policies were implemented, its costs to some people were minimized or not addressed. And so we need a package that goes after the source of the problem, but also keeping in mind that there are side effects to that that also need to be tackled. That's a really, really good response. And I really appreciate that. I mean, it's it's such a difficult and complex issue to get in front of people on a daily basis because so, they face so many other issues on a day-to-day basis. And yet, and I think we must do a better job in really spelling out the true linkages, the true cause and effect. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. I enjoyed talking to you and good luck with this and others. Great. Thank you so much. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. 
Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.